everyone, in this episode of History Unloaded, it is claimed that Danny and Ashley are going to talk about provenance. Ooh, is believed to be the episode about provenance. <laughs> we have it under good authority that Danny and Ashley are here right now and they are going to talk about Provenance. Should we just like clue all of our listeners into whenever you visit a museum and you see certain words on a label, you know that they're not actually sure about this gun? So what's funny is I think that a lot of people actually know what we're, <laughs> what we're talking about because I've had so many people laugh when you word things. It's like historians and museum professionals, we love the passive voice even though we're not supposed to use it, we're supposed to be very active on our labels, but there is a moment when education will allow you to write a passive label. And that is when you are not 100% sure of the provenance of a gun, which sounds sketchy, but at the same time is pretty common in both the museum and collecting world. Yeah, it's... There are very, very few guns that are like 100% provenance. Um, and I mean, not just guns. I mean, artifacts, yeah, in, artifacts general, in general. Unless just, it, it is hard. Well, and the, and the, the tough thing is, is even if the firearm came from the family, like they could have been liars too. Oh, yeah. So even when you've got something that's passed down through the family, if it's passed down generation to generation to generation, or even one generation, I mean, how do we really, if they don't have anything other than family lore that this belonged to their great great grandfather who was famous and now it's passed down, it's even that's hard to be able to definitively say these people are being honest with you. Right. As I like to say, some people's grandparents were liars. <laughs> especially if they had some connection to buffaloville i mean the the one we always use here at the museum and i think we've used this one on the podcast before but it's been a while is the 1886 winchester that was definitely at the battle of little bighorn according to the family story which is impossible because the 1886 wasn't introduced until 10 years after the battle of little bighorn like it was not even a prototype in john browning's eye when the battle of little bighorn happened I think you need to not assume what is was or was not in John Browning's head <laughs> or his eye. <laughs> so I think we should talk a little bit about what provenance, like what used to be acceptable in the museum field and kind of what provenance that we like to accept today. <laughs> what you, I'll, I'll cover what used to be acceptable. A handshake like that used to be acceptable. <laughs> Well, we also have, and I'm not going to say which artifact it is, but we also have that affidavit, remember? So someone signed an affidavit saying that this gun belonged to so-and-so, and that was accepted as real provenance because the guy was willing to sign a legal document saying that it's true. Yeah, they were saying- But we also know lots of people lie under oath, so- Right. I mean, let, let's think about that quality of evidence right there, because that's a really common one in museums even to this day, because we have artifacts that were taken under those, lots of museums do. But it's like, you're signing an affidavit saying this artifact belonged to such and such. And that's all great, but you're not actually assuming that much legal risk because how is anybody going to prove you definitively wrong? 
right? And then two. Well, and you could always say, even if it was definitive, if you could prove them definitively wrong, they could be like, well, when I signed that statement, that was my understanding. So, right. So there's ways out of that. You know, it's, oh, it's a legal document. Well, there's ways out of that. And then there's also the issue that it's still just, it's still just fancy hearsay. Like that's all it is because you could sign that document and you could still be multiple people removed from the original owner or from the people that had the real evidence. But then all of a sudden you like put this veneer of legal consequence over it. And all of a sudden that makes it a legitimate story. And that happens with a lot of, or happened with a lot of artifacts and probably still does, but it's just like, it's not actually that good of a piece of evidence. No. And I mean, when we talk about what do museums accept as provenance today, I think some still accept a handshake and a wink. Yeah. Also, you couldn't see that, but I just tried to wink and both of my eyes blinked. <laughs> For our listeners too, there's also a long standing joke between Ashley and myself where <laughs> when we come to subtle, mo- what are supposed to be subtle moments, we loudly announce the word wink and don't actually blink. <laughs> and, and blink both of our eyes. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, but today we try to be better, at least a lot of institutions try to be better, but even with a lot of provenance, it can be hard to definitively say one way or the other about something. I mean, unless, so a a good example of really solid provenance would be uh, the Winchester 1895 that belonged to yeah, the 1895 that belonged to Theodore Roosevelt that is in our collection on loan to us from Sagamore Hill and I think Boone and Crockett. And when these guys, I won't say their names, you can find a book. Um, When these guys are writing a book on the Winchester Model 1895, we actually, by we, I mean, not me, but Jesse, found in the records the the specific thing that said that gun was given to Theodore Roosevelt. Right. And actually it's a, it's a cool piece of evidence for one, because it's Theodore Roosevelt and and two, because it proves a theory we've had for a while, but we don't have physical evidence is that Winchester had sales invoices for like every gun they sold. And it would be really cool if they all survived, but for whatever reason they didn't. Uh, And this is a sales invoice for this gun to, Theodore Roosevelt. And it's also listed on a packing list by serial number that went to Africa. So like that is, that's really good provenance and it's, and it's from multiple sources too. So the gun belong, you know, the gun was at his home at Sagamore Hill. So it's at a, it's in the family. It's documented as being sold to him. It's documented going to Africa with him. Um, There's like multiple points where this gun pops up as being associated with Theodore Roosevelt. So that's as probably as close. I don't think we have a photo of him with the gun, but I'd say that's probably as close to a hundred percent as we can get. So let's talk about that for a second. Right. Let's talk about this one. This is a good one. (laughs) So this is something I, you know, I hear all the time, which is, you know, if only we could find a photo of them holding the firearm, which is great to find kind of like a needle in in a haystack for most things. But then also, how do you prove that that photo was the gun? Right. Unless the gun is very unique, it can be really hard to ID a gun from a photo because most guns are made in series and large production numbers and they look like each other. So 
it needs some identifying characteristic that you can tell through an old photo, which is raises a whole nother layer of problems that that's the gun. So like a good example on this one is Annie Oakley's Winchester. We have a photo of her with a gun that is, looks like a model 1892 and her 1892 has a chip out of the buttstock, a very specific chip out of the buttstock. And you can see the buttstock in the photo. And fortunately the photo is clear enough that you can see the, the same chip in the photo. So like there's you, there's an identifying feature on that gun and you can, we have a clear enough photo of it to ID the gun. But that almost. But what if a forger knew about that picture, right. got that, and made the gun look like? I mean, you get a little conspiracy theory to so to some extent. You got to just take it, you know, as it is. But but there are forgers out there that do this kind of stuff that people been, don't realize. Yeah, I think that's the other thing too is people assume way more honesty in this field. They're like, oh, provenance, you can't, you can't fake provenance. <laughs> you absolutely can. <laughs> and there are people. Have you met Larry Wilson? <laughs> Have you met I me? I mean, I'm not saying. <laughs> right. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's been going on for a very long time. And so that's why I think people talk a good game about being very cautious about buying antique firearms, you know, you know, the famous phrase by the, by the gun, not the story, but it never really plays out that way in real life, at least not based on what I see. Like it's almost always people have bought the story, not the gun. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, the one thing too, in, in terms of you mentioned that this has been going on for a really long time is the fact that a lot of times there are people who purposely make a firearm to look like a famous gun, they didn't mean for it to be misconstrued. You know, mm -hmm. they're just a gunsmith or whatever, because this happens. And I think there are some guns in our collection that are noted as such, uh, because then somebody second or third generation of selling the gun, giving the gun, whatever, you know, somewhere it's either been maliciously misrepresented or it's been accidentally misrepresented. And then it ends up in a, a collection. An example, I feel like I can talk about that I, I, and I don't know where exactly it all stands, which is why I think I can talk about it in an ambiguous way, because I think people are aware of this controversy. So there's a gun in the Smithsonian collection called the Belton Fusil Repeater. And, this, and the Belton Fusil gets brought up a lot, um, especially like when pundits are trying to show other pundits that repeating firearms existed back during the revolution, which like, hey guys, there's a lot of examples. So maybe not this one because it's like the most controversial example because we don't know if they were ever made. The Belton's um, not even the so, best. <laughs> yeah, it's not even a good example. Like there are examples a century earlier that are way more effective than the Belton Fusil would have been. So the Belton Fusil we know was designed. We know that the government bought a contract for them. We don't know if they ever made them because they canceled the contract because it was really expensive. So we know that there are drawings. We know that it was a thing that was conceived in someone's brain. The Smithsonian does have a belt and fusel firearm, but there's a lot of question as to whether or not that gun is really a 18th century belt and fusel or if it's a reproduction because there is a person out there who claims that their father was a well-known forger and made the firearm. And I can't remember if it was to misrepresent or just because it was cool because they did it based off the drawings. You know, so there's there's things like that that, you know, are made a lot later. And then people assume that they must be because they're an accurate representation, but they were just going off of the drawings. Right. And, you know, and then you get into questions of like, 
the modern day person's motives, you know, that person seems to be very publicly tried to like shame the Smithsonian into it, into like admitting this was a forgery. And then when he, people like asked him like, I, cause I think he did it via Twitter a couple of years ago. And then yeah, people were Twitter, like, yeah. where's your proof? And he's like, buy my book. And you're like, okay, like you're kind of just running your own scam. <laughs> And then the problem with something like yeah. that is then you have so many different people claiming so many things and like, who's telling the truth. And if you can't prove it, then it's just kind of a wash in understanding, or you could just make a theory of what you think that actually happened and then go double down on that. I don't know. It's, it becomes a mess, but it also shows you that this is not just a Cody firearms issue. This isn't just a private collector issue. This is a museum wide all the way up to the Smithsonian issue to try to, you know, prove these certain provenances. Right, and we're not... Provenances. Provenance. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, we're not trying to throw, like, the Smithsonian under the bus here because virtually every museum I know of that has, and not just, like we said, not just firearms, has provenance, items with problematic provenance. It's harder to say than I yep. thought. Um. And so, yeah, it's it's one of those things that's really common. And like you said, some people made things because there, there's a couple layers to why these problematic artifacts come around. Some of them are just original things that we can't know for sure. Others are items made, you know, somebody really appreciated a certain time period in history. They made a thing that they thought was neat. And then a generation or two later, somebody misrepresents it. Some of I got it. a good one. I got a good one. I got a good one. Oh, okay. So, I was going to make, I was building to the point that some of it is actual intentional forgery and some of it is like forgery by the people that were involved in the thing. Like what's her face? Um, mother of uh, Jesse James. Oh, okay. I've got a really good one and it's not a gun. So okay. there is like this whole I was going to say dark web, but I can find it. So clearly not uh, conspiracy uh, about ball and chain flails. It's like crazy. If you Google it, it's just so nuts. So there are, there are two schools of thought. I'm sure there's more than two, but we're going to talk about two. There's people who think that ball and chain flails existed or just flails in general existed. And then there are people that think that they never existed and are just a product of 19th century fascination with the medieval period. So there are images from the time that ball and chain flails are allegedly you know, around. There are paintings that depict them. So that's why people assume that they exist and then there are there's evidence that flails existed for a like agricultural standpoint because and we know that to be true i'm pretty sure we the people on the internet i don't know i think that that's a true thing because there are flails you know from centuries that are centuries old that clearly existed for a agricultural purpose but then the question comes into play did these were these ever weapons were these ever weapons was it just an idealistic artist because you could say well it's in artwork from the time period so of course they did but i mean how many times do we laugh at paintings where there are firearms that never existed you know in those paintings because they just didn't know and they were like this is cool so there are flails in collections across the world um, that are reportedly 
you know, real. I think the Met has one that's, you know, reportedly real. It doesn't look like the weird, crazy video game version of it where it's like a ball with like spikes coming out of it. It's like a square. It's like two squares on the end of a chain. And I think that they, and I could be wrong, but I think that they say that this is an early flail and it really is. But then like in talking, I think it's Jonathan Ferguson that, that talks about this a lot. There are other ones that are in collections that are reportedly real that are very clearly 19th century, you know, paraphernalia of people fascinated with a long over era. And so that's another thing that happens is that throughout history, people fanboy over stuff that we would fanboy over too. And then they start making those products, like not pretending that they're not real they're, And sometimes they do actually from the 19th century, they do fake that kind of stuff, but it's just a market. So it's like a gimmick of like something you would buy if you went to, you know, the Renaissance festival, or if you went to a medieval joust and you're like, I want to get my flail. And they would have those things back in the 19th century. And they would sell them as such vampire killing kits as well you know, they would sell them as a novelty item and then now all of a sudden we think that people in the 19th century couldn't possibly be lying or interested in trinkets and so now it becomes this much bigger debate of did they ever exist or are they all 19th century reproductions of things that we, that the our our ancestors thought were cool just like we think they're cool it, well, I, have, I have a lot of thoughts based on what you just said <laughs> so i'm just going to go down through them in order Okay. First of all, great example. 100% great example. Second of all, I think that's a really similar debate to what happens with our four barrel hand cannon, because that's a good example, I think, from our own collection. We can't just be throwing shade at everybody else's collection. That that yeah. one's that one's on the fence if it's a real thing or not. It's like a real thing. And we have people, smart people on both sides of this debate that say it's real or it's not real. And it might be a Victorian reproduction. Three, I think I'm on three or C or D or whatever. I'm playing around with my phone, so... You hit on sure. an excellent, excellent definition of what the dark web is or isn't. And I think we can reliably say if Ashley can find it, it is not the dark web. should be the new definition from... Hank I've been Hank. watching so many crime shows right now on Netflix and like cult shows and they all talk about the dark web and I'm like, like I kind of want to go, <laughs> but I don't because it's real scary. So everyone listening... That's a new definition. If Ashley can find it, it's not the dark web. The <laughs> next point was I was going to bring up the vampire killing kits that Jonathan's talked about on this podcast is a really great example of this sort of phenomenon where it's stuff that starts being made in the 19th century and then they're around for a while. And it's really hard at that point once something is even a fake that that's old, it's really, really hard to start to tell the difference. And that, that brings me on to my final point, which is a pet peeve of mine is like examining the artifact itself can be a really tricky thing because I see notes and you've probably seen this too, Ashley, like notes all the time about like way back in the day, they could refinish things. They could refurbish things. They could make things like, it's not just a modern phenomenon to have these capabilities. I've, I've seen notes as early as like the 1870s refinish this gun, you know, and like the Skylar, this happens all the time in the Skylar Hartley and Graham records refurbish, you know, this batch of guns, we're selling it here. And it, how could I tell the difference between bluing done, say, by Skylar Hartley and Graham, the same way that Springfield Armory did it when they made the musket or whatever, whatever firearm it is, within 10 years of each other? That gun was refurbed within 10 years of when it was originally made and then sold a surplus. If it was treated pretty well, that might have held up, but it's definitely not an original 
original gun anymore. How would I tell the difference between that refurb job done in 1870 and the original manufacturing finish? Like that's a really tough question. Um, so e even the artifact is really, really tough to, to, to get to. Um, oh, and I have my one yeah, last thought in that chain sorry. is that we do hold <laughs> like, chain. <laughs> nice. Uh, we do hold like, we hold historical figures up on this pedestal. Like they weren't just, I mean, we think there's self promoters out here now, but like looking at 19th century figures, if they had access to Instagram filters, like they would, nothing would be real. You know, like they Could were. Could you imagine Barnum and his mermaid? <laughs> Absolutely. 19th century people <laughs> were blatant self promoters a lot of the time. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. And like just Barnum is a great example. Yeah. Buffalo Bill is a great example. I mean, he created an entire Wild West that he wouldn't call a show because to him it wasn't a show, but it was a fictionalized version of the West. It was a more exciting version of the West. I mean, everybody does it so we should hold historic figures and by historic figures i mean just people you know not just famous people but you should hold people from the past in the same concept that we hold people today i mean certainly they're different but at the same time you know we're humans we didn't necessarily like solve any issues we haven't corrected any of our you know shortcomings probably <laughs> well, <and laughs> over too, the centuries I think part of the problem is like nowadays people, they, they put museums on a pedestal and, you know, we do try to hold to a very high standard and I'm not saying like, we're just going to throw that out the window. Um, but we try and hold to the standard and people from the outside view this very high standard. And so they think they have to come up with like this perfect provenance. And I think a lot of the times it's not there. So they try and force it. So, you know, they imagine, you know, and and the general public doesn't know what kind of records actually exist for historical items. So how, how often have we been asked for like the exact chain of custody for an old Winchester? It just doesn't exist, but people sort of assume that it's out there, right? It's like, well, the company probably kept customer records, but they didn't survive. And if they did, it probably would have just been to the hardware store that they sold it to before it got sold on to somebody else. So it's like, there's not that precise of record keeping to begin with, or, you know, one of the things people try and use is like old court records and they try and like find a gun in like a estate or something like that. It often just says gun. Like they just weren't that precise like we are today. And so the record keeping, the original record keeping becomes its own problem. And people assume that there's way more precise levels of information available than there is. Well, and now I think a good example to end on that kind of contradicts what you just said, but it's also, you're right, but then this example is just a weird one. We should go through, I don't remember all of the steps, so I can do it pretty quickly, but I think it's a good example of something that is good provenance from our collection, and that's the Roland wheel lock. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. So this is, and, and you know, of course, I was using that example as like a generality because obviously we have the precise example for the Theodore Roosevelt gun. We have a precise kind of example for the Annie Oakley gun, but that's like a 10th of a percent of our collection. You know, it, it's yeah. fractional amounts of old guns have that level, but I'll let you explain the Roland Wheelock provenance. 
So this one, and and I totally don't remember all of the provenance, so I'm just going to kind of speak in generalities. Herb House, the late Herb House, uh, really knew every step of all of it and had like the lot numbers and everything. So we have one of the only signed English Willocks in the, like in the United States or something like that. At least three reliable people have told us it's the only one. Yeah. I So... Like we do with provenance, I say one of the only because I don't <laughs> know for sure. Uh, <laughs> so this wheelock we know was made around the 16 in the 1600s. We don't know where it was for a little bit, but then it pops up in a very prominent collection. Who's someone who's a court painter to the king of blah 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 blah. That's that's good provenance right there, Danny. That's some great provenance. I just you out there, but so. So we know that this guy owns it. We know that when he dies, it then goes to another prominent collector over in England who has a little mini personal museum. And then I think we know it. And then I think it disappears again and it ends up in the United States. But then from the time it gets to the United States, it goes from this famous collector and they sell it, you know, and they sell it in his estate and it is specifically what it is. Then it goes to this prominent collector. It goes to his estate. They sell it, you know, to this prominent collector. And so it just keeps going from prominent collector to prominent collector until it comes to the Cody Firearms Museum. And they've got the lot descriptions and everything everything and so it's just kind of funny because now you have a gun from the 1600s yeah there's a couple of holes in the provenance but it actually can be tracked especially when you get to america with all the auction companies and you know all the selling of estate stuff and having well-known collectors throughout history because there are collections within our collections of people we've talked about edwin pugsley but there are other really famous collectors in our collections and then if a famous collector has it and it's super rare then another famous collector wants it and so you can actually trace it through auctions like this one and so we actually have a pretty good sense of where this one came from even though it's century old century old it's also this is a, a total sidebar to it but even, well and even that gun like there are gaps you know that's a gun we consider really well provenance but even that one has gaps in ownership yeah um but the the flip side of that is sometimes you can see even among well-known guns or slightly well-known guns a gun will show up at auction and then it shows up later at auction as a slightly different form and you're like thanks rl wilson there was another set of firearms that I don't know if I can actually say whose it belonged to or any of the story, but it's um, a pair of Boutet pistols, I'll say that. Um, and it actually has really sketch provenance. It had really sketch provenance to, I want to say, an SS officer at some point. And this person who was a famous historian purportedly saw the case that the guns came in with the name of the person. And then because it was like dark history, it mysteriously lost the cover that had the person's name on it. And now it's just, you know, a pair of really collectible bootay pistols, but we don't talk about that, you know, moment in history when it belonged to somebody really sketchy. And so I just think that's interesting because that's a moment where it actually like that provenance, unfortunately makes it, way more interesting but it's that interesting and some and a lot of collectors we can talk about this i think this is actually another great episode a lot of collectors uh, especially of firearms do not want their firearms to be connected to something negative yeah yeah that's uh that's that would make its own good episode we should do in the future but 
Yeah, it, it's, you know, for historians, it's a really valuable chain, you know, link in the chain of custody. Uh, but because it's associated with a, a you know, a, a dark chapter, then it gets sort of people try and like cover that part up. And then it, then it brings the, the, I, the object itself into question. And you're like, I really wish they would have kept this. I, I kind of see why they got rid of it, but it only hurts the objects themselves now. Yeah. So, so we'll end on SS officers, apparently. Oh, that's a rough ending. <laughs> it's such a bad place to end, but it is an interesting dialogue um, because it is something that you know museums struggle with, collectors struggle with, and we all have our own set of criteria that we find acceptable when referencing provenance on labels in our own personal collections, and you know that that auction houses have to ascribe to as well. And so it's just it's interesting and it's hard. I'm doing that thing where I talk about oh. something extra. Okay, go for it. You know how one thing we didn't cover in this is how collectors over the years have tried to sort of, I think some of them mean well, so I won't totally say take advantage of, but if I can get this thing displayed in a museum, then I don't have to worry about because they've signed off on it. And people legitimately have tried. They've tried it with me. They've tried it with virtually every museum I can think of. I'll get my objects on there and they might have a little bit of sketch provenance. If I can get them to display it, then that doesn't matter because the museum said it was okay. And then it's like, exactly. we're just going to display yeah. it for six months and then it's going straight to auction. And that's the thing that happens too. That's why a lot of museums aren't really interested anymore in loans. Yeah. One, they take up a lot of space and you don't get to keep them for a really long time. It's a lot of effort to display something temporarily unless it's like really freaking cool. But then also you do run the risk of somebody just putting it in a prominent museum so that they can turn around and sell it, which happens a lot. I've seen things go to auction that then said, you know, was a part of the Cody Firearms Museum collection. You know, so we've, so I've seen it, I've seen it happen. Um, and it sucks. Yeah, it really sucks. It, it really, really, really sucks. Um, and that's where we're ending. <laughs> more darkness. We're okay, <laughs> we're fine. We're totally fine. We're gonna be okay. <laughs> So basically, everything sucks. That is the moral of today's story. And we will, maybe it is rumored that we will be back next week. Allegedly. Believe, Allegedly. believe to happen. Will happen. Whatever. We're good at this. See ya.